जी चाहता है तब
we'll, this guy is apparently taking us on an innocent journey. But at the end, when he talks about the the uh, mermaids, um, the beauty of them, and and then saying and and um, and um, till human voices wake us and we drown. He's in an aesthetic world of the imagination, the, like the the uh, the nymphs in the uh, siren episode. You know these beautiful feminine figures, the seduct seductiveness of the beauty of women. Um, the women come and go, talking to Michelangelo. Um, there will be time, there will be time. He goes, the delays, the delays, the excuses. He's a man who lives entirely in his own world. If something human enters his life, he drowns. Um, it calls to mind the siren, um, and we're going to see it. It's where we'll end today. Um, but that was the first of those three poems showing something very different from the traditional lyric. The lyric is generally a celebration of some love. Wordsworth for nature, or whatever it happens to be. Shelley for a skylark. Um, what we saw are these damn figures. In Cloister, we've got this um, brother, a friar, um, who is sinister. He has nothing good to say about his fellow briar. He's cutting off his roses, wishing that he would be damned. You know? um, and then in um, um, Spanish Cloister, we see a count or My Last Duchess, um, who's welcoming a count who's um, <coughs> making arrangements for a possible wedding because the, 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 the count of the duchess who's died has lost his wife. He's showing this visitor this painting of his wife and he goes through it and it all seems very innocent. But when you look at it closely, like all poems, we have to learn to read closely. Because if we don't, it's a sign that that's where we're going through the world. We're not reading. We're not paying attention enough to what's going on. There's more there to see if we would open our eyes. Um, at the end of My Last Duchess, we get a sense that he had his wife murdered, that he cares more about the painting, the, the perfection of a work of art, than he does dealing with a woman with whatever imperfection she had. So in all three of those poems, we saw something sinister. And it's interesting that they coincide with the modern world, um, because Browning, Eliot, poets like that, Dunn does it a little bit in the Renaissance, but the full effects of it don't take place until the modern world. What we're seeing is, is poets are becoming more aware as if the modern world, modern man, needs to be more careful about what's going on inside of him because he tends to sentimentalize things, make everything sweet and nice, when it's not sweet and nice. There's something sinister in us as humans. And the greatness of Browning and Eliot is they make us, they make us aware of something in ourselves that we don't want to see. Remember, that's been the prophetic quality to the literature from the beginning. The poets are prophetic because they help us see those things very often we don't want to deal with. And um, so there's a great goodness Dante did the same thing at the beginning of the um, Inferno, beginning of the Commedia. A lot of evil. To, I'm in a dark wood. We will learn later that he was on the way to being damned. Opening lines. I want to show you the good that came out of this. Because learning to see that we're in danger <laughs> helps us make efforts to get out of it. Otherwise, in our complacency, we can too easily stay where we are. Okay? So, this morning what I wanted to do, because we've had those three lyrics, 
this modern lyric, is go back to Shakespeare. Remember, these the, the sonnets here are taken from a sonnet cycle. I can't remember, 150, I've forgotten the number. God, I'm really losing it. Um, it's a part of a sonnet cycle involving three people, the poet, a young kid who's a very talented young kid, and a dark mistress. And the drama seems to be that the mistress is um, playing with this kid, using him sexually, but there's some, and the, the poet seems to be attracted to the woman and would like him, would like to have a relationship himself. So there's a very dramatic dark triangle involving the three characters. So many of the poems are Shakespeare um, speaking about art or speaking about love to his beloved. <coughs> and the two poems I want to read this morning are poems sp spoken to his beloved because they go back to the tradition as you guys learned it as we move forward, that most lyric poems are an expression of of love on the part of the poet for his beloved, whatever it is he loves. It can be God in the Psalms. It's God for Wordsworth, it's nature. For most poets, it's the beloved of the woman. Okay? So, <coughs> Sonnet 73. Now remember, we've done this before. Shakespeare's sonnet is peculiar to him. It's three quatrains, four lines that have a rhyme scheme A, B, A, B, second quatrain, C, D, C, D third quatrain, E-F-E-F, -E and then a couplet, G-G. The, the beauty of this, is, and it's remarkable, most people don't see this, it's remarkable. He, he gives three different exemplars, <coughs> three different exemplars on the same theme, and then finishes with a conclusion, which indirectly, this is profound actually, indirectly it's an affirmation of being, of the being of things. What, what is it that ties those three exemplars together? They're different examples. They're examples of some different thing. And yet they point to the same thing. So that same thing is pervasive. It's everywhere in nature. So indirectly, it's an affirmation of the being of things. Trees, winter, a fire, a mistress. It doesn't matter. They all share in being. And the, and the couplet takes us there because you can, make a, you can make a generalization about these things that are very different. Is that clear? In the modern world, we tend to be nominalist. There, we don't believe in universals, or the modern world tends not to. Catholics should. Um, we believe that there are particulars. There's nothing connected to them. We're all in the modern world, we're all disconnected. We're atoms flying off in space. In the Protestant world, we're isolated. We're individuals, separated. Um, what Shakespeare's showing us is that there's an underlying unity to things. And the fact that we can make a conclusion about it means there's a, there's a quality of universality to our experiences. We can identify it. We can see it. So each one of the sonnets takes that form. Three quatrains and a couplet. Okay? First one, 73. That time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare rune choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire consumed with that 
which it was nourished by. So three quatrains, the first one, in me you see the winter of my life, like the, the trees that are bare. Um, the birds are gone, winter's here, it's a, period, it's a season of death, things are dying. So he likens himself, he's reached that old age where he can identify with the passing seasons, you know, annually. Um, so he's like winter. In the middle quatrain, he says, in me thou seest the twilight, he's going out, just like the sunset, right? The sunset goes down. Death's second self, right? Which by and by black night doth take away, sun faders. In, um, death's second self that seals up all and rest. He will go to sleep. So he compares himself to a day going out. Another metaphor for death. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed whereupon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. The, 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 the very giving of life in the fire took the life away. It can, what, what gives it fire consumes it, does away with it. So to the extent that we're energetic and full of life, we're consuming ourselves day by day, minute by minute. Um, so three different exemplar each one of them comparing some aspect of nature, and they're all different, to the fact that the poet is dying. And that's the motive for the whole poem, because he's saying um, to the mistress, it's more important to love what you're about to lose, because you're not going to have them very long. We all know that. I mean, we grieve when somebody we love is approaching death, because we're not, we know we're not going to have them around very long. So, um, as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by, this thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. So that's directed to his beloved. Sonnet 116. This is a sonnet that sometimes is read at weddings. It's an again an affirmation of love. Um, <coughs> same thing, three quatrains and a couplet. But one of the things, just to keep in mind, watch the way he uses not. Because one of the ways in which we define a thing is by showing what it's not. Love is not this, it's not this, it's not this, um, it's this. Um, and then look and see what he does to affirm love, what it is. Okay. Sonnet 116. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, the rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Beautiful images. It's not this, it's not this. It doesn't move. It's absolutely constant. No matter what the trial, no matter what, it will be faithful. Um, let me not admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alters. So, and John Dunn does the same thing when I'm going to read some Dunn coming up. It doesn't change when the beloved changes. 
right? The fact that the beloved changes means we can't change our love. We still have to remain constant. Oh, no, is it, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken because the, like the sky or the star in the sky for um, people who are navigating boats, you set your course by that. It does not move no matter what the tempests are, what's going on, you hold to that fixed mark. It is the start every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although its height to be taken. That's a beautiful line. Although we can estimate the distance between Earth and that star, there's no way to estimate its worth, what it's going to save. It's an image of the constancy of it could take Christ. I mean, how do we how do we properly estimate the worth of what he did? The, the, the infinite depths of wisdom and love he offered man in what he did. So here are two <coughs> examples of what up, up until the modern world were traditional lyrics <laughs> before we got to Browning and, uh, and Eliot. And those of you who were here last year, you remember we finished our work on Eliot with the four quartets. And the four quartets are anything but dark. They're, I think they're the most beautiful pieces of lyric poetry in the modern world. They're, they're affirmations of graces everywhere. Um, so, <coughs> let's do let's do Dante. Okay. Very very quickly. We should be able to begin to put the structure of the purgatory together and see with a little bit more completeness what's really going on there. We saw that anti-purgatory um, represented a condition. This is really crucial. Think about what, what I just said a minute ago, the way you, the way you set things next against each other to help define something. It's not this, it's not this, it's this. Dante is basically doing that by setting two things against each other. <clears throat> Anti-purgatory is a place in which souls did not take responsibility for changing their lives by doing something with God. And remember, we talked about the order. Um, they're not arbitrarily spaced out. Their order indicates um, the degree to which they didn't take responsibility for working with God to help themselves, okay? So Casella gets off the boat, he's gonna go immediately up somewhere, he's not gonna stay in the anti-purgatory we gather. But all the other souls, the first one, um, Sardella, excommunicate, outside the church. I think it was Balaco, who's the next one? Indolent, languid, wouldn't bother to take his head off his hands, remember his elbows were on his knees, sarcastic, he was making sarcastic comments to Dante and and then the ones the, the the people who follow are all late repentance. They repented in the act of dying. So through that relationship, Dante's showing us a couple of things. One is um, a, a soul can be saved right up to the last moment. He can have lived an awful life, but if he repents at the end, if there's still something there, there's something for God to work with. So remember when Balakwa, or um, um, Bioconte died, his throat was slit, and he cried out the word Mary. The two angels came, and the, um, the bad angel expected to take him because he was damned. And the good angel takes him because his last breath was Mary. 
It's Dante's way of saying, so long as there's any goodness in a human being, God's not going to let that person go. So we see in that spread the relationship between those men, degrees of men taking responsibility for their lives by doing something with God. The princes were at the end of that line. Um, They indicated that um, they were too preoccupied. They were good men. They were serving. But they were too preoccupied to do what they should have done to get going. So that whole setting is set off from purgatory itself because in purgatory itself we see human beings who are doing everything they can to repent their sins um, with the help of grace. And the whole action of purgatory is the action of that grace. Answering a law, satisfying a law, and doing it in grace. I I meant to do this and I forgot. We had to come to church this morning. Some of you may remember this when we did um, Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. When Portia goes to court, um, she has to defend Antonio. Um, She can't let him off, and if if the punishment holds, he'll die. She has to work for a real justice, and the justice she asks for involves the mercy. She she describes mercy as as the dew falling from heaven. it, it lightens the effect. She's not doing away with law. She's saying the law has to be enforced, but if we bring a mercy to it, it won't do away with the law. It'll make it better. It'll be a justice in, that's in keeping with a merciful God. That's what we're seeing in the purgatory. There, um, there cannot be a penance if there isn't a law, because we have no means with which to gauge we're wrong about something. So the, the, the Protestant mind, by making faith everything, is, is in one, the, the larger, by and large, the Protestant world, certainly f- the fundamentalist Protestant, is antinomian, anti-law, anti-reason. Because reason is the basis of law. The Catholic isn't. Um, um, you can't repent if you're not aware of a, a law you've broken. What you're trying to do is make your, your mind and your heart and your will lawful with the help of a mercy to help you do it. If we do away with either one of them instead of pulling them, we're in trouble. We've talked about this before. A law by itself is cruel. A mercy by itself is enabling. Um, <coughs> so <coughs> each of the sinners is becoming more lawful in love. They're becoming fuller human beings. They're making their own nature lawful. And they're growing in love as they do it. Um, Here. Remember we talked about this. I don't want to go into this. We've gone over this before. The great virtue of the ancient world was law, justice. Mm -hmm. That's true for the pagan mind and the Old Testament Jew. Um, Justice meant giving another his due. But a man couldn't do that if he didn't learn to order his own soul and make, him, make himself just. He wouldn't be able to bring a justice to others if he didn't do that. Christ um, shattered that, and not completely, because um, he offered a love that men didn't deserve. The whole nature, the whole character of the pagan um, Jewish world was man gets what he deserves. If, he, if he's good, if he's righteous, he'll be with God. If he follows the law, he'd be righteous. He'd be one with God. 
Christ came to show that that's not so, that there are deep there, there are sins in us that are deeper that have to be put away. Because uh, somebody Jewish can follow the law and be righteous and be a bad man. Paul is a good, the best example, probably. He was um, a Pharisee. He, he was a strict, he strictly adhered to the law. But he was punishing Christians, killing them. So what Christ did was come to fulfill the law. He said, I didn't come to do away with it. I came to fulfill every iota of it. He went to a cross to fulfill a law. Otherwise, his going to the cross would have no meaning. It, it would be futile, a, a stupid act. He went to the cross to answer a law that men couldn't answer. But he brought to it a divine love, a love that men couldn't answer. So what, he's, what Christ did was fulfill the law, own up to it with a divine love, because humans couldn't do it, and ask us to do the same. So that the great task for all of us is to hold ourselves to the law in mercy, in a spirit of mercy. And I'm trusting everybody knows how hard that is. Mm -hmm. it's, e it's much easier to do one or the other. <coughs> the other thing, one of the most important things, um, if have, I mean, Sue, how many, have you missed two weeks? Yeah, the last two weeks. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take a little bit more, sorry, because I, I really want Sue to get this. Um, um, so this is more, I'm going to spend a little bit more time than I wanted on review, but I, this is so important that I want you to hear this. Um, we talked about the traces of the Trinity several weeks ago. The importance of the Trinity for the whole of the committee, yeah? It's not just a technical, external, mechanical principle. Um, three canticles, each canticle is divided into three. The Inferno has three levels, the Purgatory has three levels, the Paradiso will. There are signs of the Trinity everywhere. It's the ancient world would have called it traces of the Trinity. It's there. The the most prominent place is in the rhyme scheme itself in the Terzarima, the Terzarima, A B A B C B C. You know, it it's the same. This is what's beautiful about it. It's the same and always forward moving. In some sense, it's a perfect image of the Trinity. The Trinity is still. It, it's not it, the Trinity has no desires. We do. We want things. The Trinity is complete in love. There are no desires in the Trinity. God is complete. He doesn't lack anything. So in Aristotle's terms, he's the still point. So our our understanding of the Trinity is it's complete. Um, so the the Terzarima in one sense is a perfect ironic, paradoxical example of something remaining the same while it's constantly in motion. It's the paradox at the center of the Trinity. And I gave that example, you remember, from St. Thomas um, of the I think is the best of the examples. One of the best traces, one of the best pieces of evidence of the Trinity is the fact that our consciousness perfectly matches God's nature. Okay? So let me just briefly review that. God is. He's being. Remember, he identifies himself in the Old Testament. He says, I am that am. 
when he names himself, right? God is being, all being. There's nothing outside of him. Nobody created him, which means he would be inferior. Something else would be greater. Um, everything created by him is inferior. Okay? God is all being. His concept of himself, his, his, his concept of himself is the image, the concept, the idea of himself. He's conceived, right? His conception, he, his conception of himself, conceives himself, is his son, his image. That's why Christ said, in me you see the Father. When he conceived himself, did he conceive himself outside of time? Absolutely not. His conception of himself is with himself. When Arius said, God, God was begotten outside of time, he wanted to make God, Christ, a creature. He lost his divine nature under Arius. You following me? So God is all being. When he conceives himself, what he conceives shares in his being. It's eternal with him. That's why the Son is described as being begotten, not made. Because if he were made, he would be less than being. Are we okay? When he conceives himself, it's his Son. That means the Son is co-eternal, begotten, uncreated. He's only called a Son by their relationship, not because he's inferior, he's one with. The love between the Father and Son produces yet another being, one in being. It's the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. One God because they all share the same nature. They all share being. Okay? Now, human beings, we're not God. God subsists. He will be, he exists forever. We won't. We can be born into the world. Um, we can suffer, a, let's say, we can suffer a wound to our head so our head no longer functions. And still be alive. We can be comatose and still be alive. Okay? Mm -hmm. But those are our three faculties. If, if we happen to be born healthy, we are, I am, you are, each one of you, I know, I know something, and I love. So those three faculties line up perfectly with God's nature. And that's where we were. Okay? But a couple of weeks ago, I introduced this um, St. Augustine's, one of St. Augustine's images, traces. Memory, understanding, and will. And I, I went back to the ancient world and reminded you that that um, every great work we read, every every great work, um, made an appeal to one of the nine muses. The nine muses were the offspring of Zeus and Mimosine. Mimosine means memory. Mimosine. Mimosine mated with Zeus and produced the nine muses. One of them is called Calliope. Remember? She's the muse that, that Homer appealed to, the Virgil appealed to. Nine is a multiple of what? Three. Three. So you can see the traces of the Trinity there, but the important thing here is, is to remember, mimosine doesn't mean memory the way it would for a modern psych psychologist. 
who would make a behavioralist and a determinist. Memory, if it has any meaning in the ancient world, meant a cosmic memory that everything was contained there. So if you look at the genealogy of the gods, memory, mimosine, would contain the being of things, all of them. So when she mates with Zeus, it's another way of saying there's something fecund, life-giving, in gods. That they, they, there's some interdwelling. This is sort of amazing to me. There's, there's a fecund. They, they produce. They create. That Zeus and Mimosin, they come together and produce the nine muses, and they're the, ins the sources of inspiration for work, labor, art, everything in creation. So what they're showing is that there, there is this divine spirit at work, indwelling, working. It's diffusive. It goes out to things to help make them better. But the reason for focus, focusing on, is, on this is this term memory. For, for St. Augustine, God doesn't, have, God doesn't have a memory because there's no past to him, but we do. But he uses the word because it's a way of indicating that memory contains the whole of it, everything. It's all there. Understanding means becoming one with that thing, knowing it, and loving it becomes making it a part of yourself, being joined in union. So those three faculties defined the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The importance of this way of looking at it for us is this. One of the ways in which to see what's going on as souls move up purgatory is that they're recovering their memories. Where do you go when you've lost something? You go in your memory to try to remember, to find it. That's what memory is. We go, where did I last leave that? And you go back in your memory to find it. Now that's the most practical application of this notion, but clearly for St. Augustine it meant more. To go back into the memory of a person, since the memory contains everything, is to go back to our origins, what we first lost. What did we first lose? God in the garden. Okay? And that's the first thing I wanted to um, I wanted to just recall. Is everybody clear in that? Wait one second. Hold on. Give me just what's the other hold on. Um, oh the um, Yes. No, just a real quick question, sir. Let's just say of all those seven that are up there, the least one that you were guilty of was sloth. Right. So do you spend less time in sloth? Let, let me wait, because we're going to get there. Wait, because okay. we, we'll go there. Okay. That's something i got to cover. That's the first thing. Is everybody okay? Mm -hmm. So memory, does, memory has a much larger mythic meaning for St. Thomas, St. Augustine, should for a Christian, than for a modern psychologist. Okay. Because for these people, memory would contain everything. It would go back to the garden. So as the souls move up purgatory, each act of repentance, each act of penance, to put it even more specifically, each act of humility strips away a layer and helps that person recover his sight. He learned to see better. And what's, what's hard, I've said this before, we think we see so well because we do, right? We go through the world thinking, we, I'm not blind, I've got, I've got a good mind, I understand things, I can see so well. If we pay any attention to this, what we realize is we don't see very well at all. If we don't learn to see with eyes of love, there will be a lot of good we miss. It's just the way our minds will color things. 
We're too much concerned with ourselves, what people think about us, and we don't realize how much it blinds us. So as the souls are going up purgatory, they're learning to recover their sight. The wholeness of the memory that they once had is being recovered. It's changing the way they are, it's changing the way they see, and the way they love. Now that's one, okay? Now the other thing, remember I gave you that line, this is, this is to me the most important. Sue, this is really what I wanted you to get. I'm going to test you on this when you come back. Okay. Here's the... <laughs> I know your memory I know your memory is really good um, here's where this is going remember St. Thomas's description of the Trinity God, one God right? three persons each one of them shares in being right? they're indwelling that means perfectly that means God indwells in the Son and Spirit the Son in the Father and the Spirit, or the Spirit in the Father and Son. They indwell. They're one with each other. Now stop and think about that because that utterly changes the way we understand God and our, should, under, should affect the way we see ourselves. Remember, St. Saint, Saint Thomas said, God the Father is not more or less than the Trinity itself. Now stop and think about that because in our world we think there are three persons. In fact, when, when we look at them in our art, there's three persons, always. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is it suggests God's a part of something larger. So artistically, it's a misrepresentation. It actually encourages the wrong way of seeing it. According to St. Thomas, God is not more or less than the Trinity himself. He's not more or less than the other two. In our world, take three. In our world, one is less than two and three. Right? It's a part. It's smaller than two and three combined. Two and three combined are larger than one. It's not so with God. We're used to thinking in terms of natural spaces. We know it's space and time. So we reduce that. For God, there is no space and time the way we know it. He's infinite. He's being itself. So God is not larger or less than the Trinity itself. Neither is the Son or Holy Spirit. We were made in God's image. If that's so, then the recovery of memory, one of, the, one of the things that's going on in purgatory as the souls go up, is that it's learning to recover that wholeness that God has, the way that I'm describing it, not parts, a whole. It's learning to recover that wholeness that it once had with God that we only find in the Trinity itself in the intimacies that they share between them because God is one with the others they're, they're all perfectly indwelling with each other so as they go up each individual find experiences a strange thing happening you'll see this a little bit with Virgil before Dante does something Virgil will already when, when he does the siren thing Virgil will say I already know it's in you that's at a initial stage. When he and Beatrice start climbing paradise, when they go through the heavens, Beatrice is going to know what Dante's thinking every moment before he says it, before he even himself knows it. Why? Same for Dante. Because they're beginning to indwell in each other. That an indwelling is beginning to take place. So they are becoming one. And here we say um, a body can't occupy the same space at the same time. Two bodies can't occupy the same space at the same time. 
That's in a physical world. In a world in which those physical laws don't apply, what happens in a spiritual world? Even with bodies, because their bodies are not going to be the same. The, the souls will indwell with each other, so they, they will remain distinct individuals. Remember, our bodies will be returned to us. They're the, they're the principle of individuation. We know it, each other by our bodies. Um, we will keep our individuality, but the way we love um, will involve a wholeness, a one with another that we don't hear. In our world, we tend to see things in terms of a subject-object dichotomy. She, he, subject-object. I know that person is the thing. We, we've gone over this. So we, um, we, t- we, it's, we objectify each other. Men use women as objects. Women use men as objects. Men are peculiar in that respect. It's one of the effects of the fall. Women do too. Um, it's because of that dichotomy. Returning to God means recovering that wholeness, that sense of oneness that we have with each other, so that an indwelling takes place. So that's what purgatory is about. What we're seeing at each level is the, the penitents are learning to see better. And as they see better, they learn to love better. Um, until there's no more, there's no more subject-object um, they're in a position of becoming whole with each other. Okay, that's where we're going. What will happen at the top of um, of purgatory is that Dante will have completed his purgation, imaginably, because he's he's going to have to come back and go through it. Remember when he dies, and he says then that the the, the the ledge he's most afraid of is the level of pride. I'm assuming all of us can. I mean, it's it's certainly the one level that frightens me more than any. I mean, my own pride. Dante's not looking forward to coming back to the level of pride when he dies, but he goes through purgation and he's at the top. Beatrice meets him. She will scold him mercilessly. So even though he's through the penance, Dante's suggesting that each one of us is going to have a personal reckoning where our betrayals were greatest. Whatever that was, husband, wife, who knows. Because Dante loved Beatrice in some ways in a way that he didn't love his wife and that's not to say he wasn't a good husband it's just she was an image of the trinity to him so when he started playing around she will accuse him and he spent time with other women or doing what he did he, he's going to pay for it because she's just going to she's going to make him faint again it'll be one of the it'll be the last time we see Dante pass out okay that's just a quick overview do you have any do you have any questions about that? Just simple. I was here for the first time you did this, so did I? Oh, a lot oh. of it is the same. Okay. I mean, yeah. I just wanted you not do to Do I completely it. understand it? No, of course not. But do I? Am I working on it? Yeah, I have enough information Good. to work on it. Well, you all understand the difference between divine realities and human, that divine realities can't be quantified or we, not in terms of parts or whole. And, and one of the images we saw it last week. We're going to do it again today. When they, when they, at the level of, uh, we'll get to it. Let's go to it right. Is now. that the order that you have up there? Lust is at the top, right? And, and pride is the first step. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get here. Okay. Now, because we're going to the book. So. Okay. Okay. Let's let's. Um,
I want to carry through the re review, just go back very, very quickly to the beginnings of the purgatorial. Um, <coughs> Dante has just received the warning from the guardian at the gate, telling him not to look back. We all know the danger of that. Um, when we set out something, a looking back means we don't let go of it. We still want to hold on to it. And it's clear that if you're going to go through purgatory, it's, the major thing is do not look back. And you've got to have Cato behind you, something so stern, because otherwise our tendency to play light with it means we won't do it. I mean, we'll make excuses, you know, keep going back. 247, so finally squeeze through that needle's eye. It's a perfect image because you remember um, when the disciples who could go to heaven and he said it's, it's as hard as um, a needle passing through the eye of a, or, or, or a camel passing through the eye of a needle and the disciples said that nobody because nobody's going to get through it and the whole point is man cannot do that heaven's a supernatural condition man can't there's no way man can get there on his own the only way he can get there is with God's help that's why this whole thing of anti-purgatory was so important. People did not make God important enough. They made their own lives more important, so they weren't working with Him to accomplish a supernatural end. Man cannot go through that, eye, that needle's eye on his own. Heaven's a supernatural condition. We only get there with God's help. So, if humans make something more important than God, they're undercutting their efforts. The most important thing for every one of us has got to be God, whatever we do in the world. Okay, um, and I, I, we went over the goads and checks, right? When Dante comes to the first level of the proud, he sees images on the face of the mountain. Those are the goads. The goads are examples of the virtue opposite the sin. And Mary's the first because she was perfect with respect to... It's really interesting. She's perfect with respect to every one of these sins. What's the virtue opposite pride? Humility. Humility. So the, the first example, I think, is Mary saying, yes, I will. Example. Remember? So every, every, on every cornice, we will see Mary in a different act performing the virtue that answers that sin. On the level of the pride, it's this one. So there were the level of the goads, and then on the, the foot of the, the floor of the mountain were the checks, which are images of the sin itself. And the beauty of that first, that first level is the, the penitents experienced the checks easily Right, because they're on their hands and knees with these large boulders on them, crawling around. They can't miss it. If they're going to look at the goads, they have to strain to see, because they've got these boulders. So what Dante showed us is, because of our habitual way of doing things, we have to. We've always got the answer. I know the answer. We don't listen well. They have to strain against themselves in order to see. And it's just another way of reminding us that we don't see very well because we become habituated in the way we, our minds work. We have, to, we have to strain to learn to see things in new ways. Put it that way. It doesn't come easily to us. So they go through 
um, the level of hell. And remember on, on 354, he meets Umberto um, Odorisi. Umberto is, is there because of his pride in his family. Odorisi is there because of his pride in his art. And uh, Provazon on page 256 is there because of his political pride. And I, I think, I, didn't I suggest this? Mm -hmm. The order is always significant. Umbert, the, the first sin being atoned for is family pride. Dante makes that clear, and I think he's following Christ. And I, I've mentioned, I'm not, I'm, I mean, I'm not a biblical scholar, so I'm a little bit weird, but I think I'm on firm ground here. The two great dangers that Christ saw facing us are religious leaders. I think that's still true today. It's not less true now. And family. <laughs> the greatest dangers are in our family because they're more our loves where are our prides going to show themselves most in our most immediate love he's my son look at what he did she's my daughter do you see how great she is um, and, and look at what happens in our families enabling drugs alcohol every worst possible thing goes on I wish they would do this course in uh, pre-Cana. No. no, I'm not kidding. I'm not I kidding. I wish, I wish young people were growing up with this stuff, so they had a shot at it when they were younger. Incidentally, on page 194, they have that example perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Going over to uh, Envy, just quickly. He encounters um, Sapia on page 267. She, she's an example of envy because you remember she took joy when her townspeople were killed. Um, and we, we lined up the Beatitudes with each level and I asked the question, it's a good one to ask again, why is blessed are the merciful the appropriate Beatitude for envy? Do you remember? Doc, what's the virtue that answers, that takes care of envy? Well, the one in here is generosity. Generosity. En envy, envy is the, here wait, pride um, is the feeling we have when we want to be above somebody else, stand above them. Envy is the feeling we have when we want somebody who has something that we don't have to lose it. Right? Envy means somebody's got something and I don't. And we feel envious. Wrath means it's the feeling we have when somebody's injured us and we want to get back. We want them to hurt. We want to hurt them back. That's wrath. Um, what's the virtue opposite pride? Humility. Meekness, humility, or humility, yeah. And the virtue opposite envy is generosity why is um, the, the beatitude blessed are the merciful the beatitude that's um, expressed as Dante leaves the canticle of envy do you remember it's, it's worth knowing envy is feeling glad when somebody loses something Morning, blessed are the. I think it's morning. Is it the morning? Is that am I mixing it up? Born morning. 
What's the beatitude at the end of? Yeah, the merciful. Um, mercy is being sad when somebody loses something. Yeah? <coughs> Over on 277, we see Pastor Me Went Already Climbing When Beate Misericorde. Um, Um, another way, to, well, I gave the example here. I want to. Uh, um, Dante asked Virgil at that point at the bottom of 277, what did that spirit from Romagna mean who spoke of partnership and of denial? Virgil at the top of 278, because you make things of this world your goal, which are diminished as each shares in them. Every envy pumps hard the bellows of your sides. But if your love for, for the lofty sphere, your cravings would aspire for the heights, and fear of loss would not oppress your heart. The more there are up there who speak of ours, the more each one possesses, and the more charity burns intensely in that realm. Dante says he hungers for more. How can one good that's shared by many souls make all those who possess it wealthier than if it were possessed by just a few? And he, since you insist in limiting your mind to thoughts of worldly things alone, from the true light you may reap only the dark. That infinite, ineffable, true good that dwells in heaven speeds instantly to love as light rays to a shining surface would. Just as much ardor as it finds, it gives. The greater the proportion of our love, the more eternal goodness we receive. I gave the example last week. Um, I think you remember. It's Thanksgiving, and Aunt Mildred is bringing her family with us five kids. And Mom is making two pecan pies. And suddenly you hear that Uncle Ralph and his six kids are coming for Thanksgiving. What's your response? You're a, you're a nine-year-old kid who loves pecan pie. But we eat some now. Can't get it. But mom has no time. So when you say make another one, she said, "Get out of here! I'm too busy." Which is what mother's I mean, dinner, Thanksgiving dinner is already planned out. What's his response? Come on, you guys. He doesn't I better get less. Yeah, he he. I mean, to put it worse, in his heart. I hope they get in an accident on the way. <laughs> And I'm sure that he does, but there's envy. Because if you've got 10 in the family, you cut 10 pieces. Suddenly you have 18 in the family, every one of those pieces is going to shrink. Mm -hmm. And if it's your favorite pie, you are not going to be happy. So um, envy is being sad or glad when somebody loses something because you want it. You don't have it. Mercy is being sad when they lose it which means being glad when they have it. So the, the, the right response to that moment should be, I'm happy that he gets a piece too, even if I get less. Is everybody clear? Yeah. Those are the things we have to do with our hearts. Pride is one, envy is this. But I want to just focus for a second on that, that quote. <clears throat> that infinite, ineffable, true good that dwells in heaven speeds instantly to love as light rays to a shining surface. If everybody's a shining surface and one person comes into heaven, what's going to happen? Is it going to be just one person adding so it's one more piece to a thousand pieces? That's a parts and holes way that I'm 
trying to answer here. It's go, it's going to multiply uh, exponentially, right? Right. It is it is an image. The 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 multiplication of the fishes mm -hmm. was an image of exactly what's going to go on because when one soul enters heaven and he becomes one with everybody else, it's going to multiply infinitely. If God is an infinite being, that's what's going to happen. So if if we import part holes ways of thinking when we look at that we will never see it right it's not just one part so if you've got a hundred parts they'll all fill out just parts that's the modern mind by the way it's all parts and holes if it is a parts expendable wait by the way that's Descartes that's Kant the, the, the whole is the sum of its parts the whole is the sum of its parts if one part becomes bad what do you do with it throw it to the curb, get rid of it, replace it. Aristotle, the whole is prior to and greater than the parts. That's Aristotle. Because Aristotle knew there was a nature before there was a person. Um, the, the, Aristotle believed that the polis was so important because each person was a part of a polis, but the, the, the nature was prior to his coming there. I'm, I'm going to come back to this in a second. Anyway, so when a, when, a, when a person enters a polis, he's got all these influences helping him to be, to perfect his nature. Um, so it's, the problem is partly this parts and holes way of looking at it. That, that can't be the way that we describe uh, heaven. By the way, interesting, for those of you who did Faulkner, there's this line in Faulkner's The Town. And I, I can't remember if we went over it, but it's in The Town. I don't know if he had Eula on his mind, or I can't remember. I don't remember. All I remember is he said, "How did he put it?" Yeah. The baby existed before the father and mother, or the father and mother would have never had. I hope you all understand that. The baby pre-existed the father and mother. He was there before, because without him. We, there would have never been a father. Does a father and mother begin ex nihilo out of nothing and want to have a kid? Or do they long to have a child that they do not have yet? And it's only because that child pre-exists in their mind that they would want one. So he said the child existed before. It's funny. I mean, Faulkner's playing with the same sort of notion. Is that clear? It's there. I mean, it doesn't have a body. Yeah. But it's there. Or we wouldn't have a child. That mystery haunts Christianity because we know there was all, God was there before we were there, and um, our way of looking at the world is not everything's explained by matter. There was something already there. So here, when a soul enters heaven, it's it's like a light that's going to bounce off shiny surfaces everywhere. Heaven is going to light up enormously with the entrance of every soul. It's going to recover this wholeness that I'm struggling <coughs> to define. Yeah, that God's not more or less than the whole; He's one, and that there's that kind of wholeness, this indwelling that will take place in heaven, with the addition of every soul. There's going to be this infinite multiplication. What happened with the fish is going to happen a hundred times beyond. You know that sort of thing. Is everybody following? Okay. <clears throat> when they go to the level of the wrathful, um, everybody's in smoke. 
Now, what's happening to sight? What happened to sight at the level of the envy? The eyes of the pedants were wired shut. Why? Because when they looked at the world, their envy darkened it. They made good things bad, right? I mean, think about what our sight does, how really blind we are. If envy or pride is a part of our sight, how much we don't see. Their eyes are wired shut because they refused the good that was in life for them. Now they've got to give it up. That means the, the, the goads come to them as voices in the air. They've got to learn to see through hearing. Is everybody following? Let me put it differently, because I, 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 tr- you know the truth of this I take so seriously. How well do we hear each other? How well do we hear each other? I'm saying this really honestly. How well do we hear? And that's another way of seeing. If we don't hear, how well do we see? We're not hearing somebody else. What does that mean for the way we see? So on the level of the proudful, the, the penitents are having to strain to see something. The level of the envious, their eyes are closed, they have to strain to hear something. And in both of those instances, their sight is being corrected. They're learning to see better by straining, by hearing. Um, in the level of the wrathful, they're in smoke. It's, an in, it's the contrapasso of anger that we get so passionate. We're blind. We don't see. And voices, the goats come to them in ecstatic visions. So they have to trust these inner visions, not just empirically what, what they see with their eyes. So again, I'm just repeating, at every level, to the extent that souls are doing penance, they're learning to see, the, the layers are being stripped off, they're recovering a memory, and they're recovering that wholeness they once had. They're learning to love each other better, to work together better, to bring love to what they do. They're singing, they're praying. They're changing. They're changing. I've said again and again, it's the image of the church. It's what the church is. Um, um, on Page 292, 290, 291, 292. 290, the sun is starting to go down, and Virgil and Dante have to rest for a few minutes. Um, And while they do, you know Virgil. He does not want to waste time. He always has to make um, use of it. This, by the way, let me stop for, can I just have, come out of the book for a second here? I've got it. This is really important. I said it before, but now it's going to be real because we're going to be in the book. This is the center of the Commedia, the very center. Uh, it's, it, it's at this point that Dante has these discourses on the, the nature of purgatory, which is indirectly a description of the church, the nature of free will and love. Those are the major discourses they occur right now, and it's while they rest. Okay, They're on the um, ledge of the slothful, the sun's going down, and they make use of their time here. It's here that they'll encounter the, the siren, and that's where I want to stop in a minute. Um, but what's, what's taking place right now is major. And 
so I don't get thrown. This is one of the things I knew I was forgot at the very beginning of the class. I wanted to remind you. Next week will be our last class on the Purgatorio. We'll go through the rest of the mountain somewhat quickly, and then I'm just going to take a brief look at the at the the Beatitian, the Beatrice with her um, procession. Um, it's it's a, it's an example of a mass. If you watch that procession with all the candles and everything that's taking place, symbolically it's an image of the Mass. Just keep that in mind. Um, Dante's celebrating the Mass. It's a Catholic world. Um, the divisions haven't taken place yet. Um, and it brings Beatrice to him, and she's a Christ-bearer. So she's bringing Christ to Dante, and this is where she's just going to be scathingly angry at him. She's just going to take him apart. Dante's going to pass out and... Anyway, there's a reckoning, and I want to look at that. So read that. This will be our next week. I'm tentatively I'm planning is the last week on the purgatory. We may take part of the next week, but I want to start the Paradiso for sure because we've got to get we've got to finish. So next week, the last week, <laughs> two things to keep in mind. One is the the reunion with uh, Beatrice and the procession that brings her. What happens when the two of them are together? What she says to him. He's, he's washed in two rivers. We have to look at that. So all that happens there on the earthly paradise is really important. What precedes that, to me, in my mind, is equally important, but lots of people don't give it the attention I think it deserves. When Dante and Virgil get to the top of purgatory, um, they're with another poet. When they left the ledge of the, when they are on the ledge of the product, the, 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 the ab, avaricious and prodigal. The mountain shook and Stasius was released. He picks them up and there's three poets now climbing. Um, it goes to your question. I don't know if we'll get to it, but we will, David, for sure. Um, Stasius spent for 900 somewhere around what? Four and five, nine hundred, say eleven close to 1,100 years on purgatory. 1,100 years. 500 years in one level, four in another, and 250 that aren't accounted for. I'll go through that next. Stasius joins them, and they go up to the top, and on the level of Lustful, they meet Guido, who is a poet. And the four of them talk about poetry, and I want to spend a minute with it because it's there that we learn something about the nature of poetry and what it can do that no other arts can. You've been hearing me bang you over the head with that for years, but it's going to be a meeting of poets and, and the lustful. So I want to look closely at that and I want to look at the, the reunion between Dante and Virgil, okay, just so you know next week. 290. <clears throat> I think we read that line, I'm almost sure we did. Marco, um, <clears throat> Marco the Lombard meets Dante on 283. Dante asks him, why are things going so bad? Um, Marco said, I was a Lombard, this is 283, I was a Lombard. Marco was my name, he knew about the world. I love the good at which men now no longer aim their bows. What is that good down below? Dante says, what's happening? 
Um, I first was made aware of it below, and now it plagues my mind a second time for your words, second when I first heard there. The world indeed, as you have just declared, is destitute of every virtue known, swarming with evils ever breeding. I think we read this, didn't we? What is the cause of this? Please make it clear that I may teach the truth to other men. A deep sigh wrung by grief into alas came first and then. The world, brother, is blind, and obviously the world is where you're from. You men on earth attribute everything to the sphere's influence alone, as if with some predestined plan they moved all things. If this were true, then our free will would be annihilated. It would not be just <coughs> to render bliss for good or pain for evil. The spheres initiate their tendencies, not all of them, but even if they did, you have the light that shows you right from wrong, and your free will, which, though it may grow faint in its first struggles with the heavens, can still surmount all obstacles if nurtured well. Go down. So if the world today has gone astray, the cause lies in yourself only there. Now should carefully explain the cause. From the fond hands of God, who loves her even before he gives her being, there issues forth, just like a child, all smiles and tears at play, the simple soul, pure in its ignorance, which having sprung from her creator's joy, will turn to anything it likes. At first she's attracted to a trivial toy, and though beguiled, she will run after it. If guide or curb do not divert her love, men therefore need the restraint of laws, needed a ruler able to at least discern the towers of the true city. True, the laws are there, but who enforces them? No one. The shepherd who is leading you can chew the cud, that is, meditate, but lacks the cloven hook, the instrument for punishing, the sharpness. And so the flock, they see their shepherd's greed for the same worldly goods that they have craved, are quite content to feed on what he feeds. As you can see, bad leadership has caused the present state of evil in the world, nor nature that has grown corrupt in you. O Rome, <coughs> O Rome that brought the world to know the good, once shown two suns that lighted up two ways, the road of this world and the road of God. The one sun has put out the other's light. The sword is now one with the crook, and fused together must now bring about misrule. What's going on? It's a Where does he say, Oh, Rome, Caesar, why have you abandoned me? But what's going on here? At the very bottom of 285, tell the world this, the church of Rome, which fused two powers into one, has sunk in muck, defiling both herself and her true role. Well argued, my dear Marco, I replied, and now I understand why Levi's sons were not permitted to inherit wealth. What's going on? What's wrong? The one thing that people lack today, the good that Mark was speaking of, that nobody loves anymore, is virtue. Mm -hmm. It's gone. Who talks about virtue? Not only that, but one of the reasons they no longer care about virtue, you men on earth attribute everything to the sphere's influence alone as if with some predestined plan they moved all things. If this were true, then our free will should be annihilated. It would not be just to render bliss for good or pain, but as if we're all determined, we have no basis on which to punish somebody or 
celebrate somebody. The spheres initiate their tendencies, not all of them, but if they did, you still, even if there are some things determined, we still have reason, we can see that there's a difference between good and bad, and we have a will to make a choice. So even if there are these determinisms, we're still responsible for <coughs> choice. Dante's again respond, I mean, just celebrating human responsibility. What's going on? Well, isn't he also criticizing the leaders in the church, in particular, because they're not showing the right way. They've, they've been co-opted. Who's been co-opted? The ch well, even the church, the leaders, the, the world, and the people who should be teaching and preaching virtue have been co-opted and are looking at the wrong things and are not yeah. keeping their eye on this. Yeah. I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm good. Um, I think it's a little bit worse than that. I think what he's saying is, remember, we did this when we did the, actually a long time ago when we did Dante, and then when we started again with the Protestant Catholic thing. If you go back to those documents that I gave you, all the early church fathers said there were two powers. Yeah. Caesar's God. Mm -hmm. The two powers, the, 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 the crook and the sword. Christ, given to Caesar's what Caesar's given to God. The problem here is that the church, Rome, has co-opted the state. And once the shepherd, who should be chewing the cud, that is, the most important thing for the shepherd is meditation and prayer, saving souls, speaking to souls. No one, the shepherd who is leading you, can chew the cud but lacks the cloven foot. He doesn't have the sword. He can't enforce that sword. And because he can't, it means the laws get lax, and then this little soul isn't curbed growing up. So, and remember Pope John's admonition to the, when, when he was Pope, when he said to the whole clergy, get out of politics. I mean, he was adamant about that. So to the degree that the church takes over a power that it does not have, it's only going to weaken what happens in the world. Because there are two powers, the Pope in the church and the emperor in that case, the president or, you know, in our age. When the Caesar gets lax on his laws, too liberal, and makes it easier for people to do what they want to do, people becomes lawless. We don't have to look farther than our own culture to see that. I mean, just what, how violently lawless our culture has become in the last hundred years. Um, tell the world thus the Church of Rome, which fused two powers into one, has sunk in mug def defiling both herself and her old in Rome. Well argued, my dear Moko, now I understand why Levi's sons were not permitted to inherit wealth. Why not? Is that clear? We've been going through this. What happens? Well, Levi's sons were the priests, right? Yeah. Right. So. Carried out. What's the argument? What's well, they're, they're supposed to be the priests, not, not the wealthy and rulers. Yeah. And more importantly, I mean, go back to Milton and, and Dante, because remember, things have not changed. Milton is 200 years later, and he's arguing against the same thing. Um, when, when religious, um, um, receive properties from the king, to whom is their allegiance? The king. And if they can buy and sell properties, I mean, here we are, simony, <coughs> they can buy and sell properties, what's, what's going to happen? Marriages, mistresses, wealth, corruption. I mean, it's everything that Milton looked at. It's here already. You know, Dante is taking apart the church right now because of all these corruptions. Um, 
I missed that line where it must have been earlier where the soul says Caesar Caesar why have you abandoned me I, I thought we read it together but he's he's de he's decrying the corruption in the temporal order that the temporal order has become so corrupt and in a major way because of what the church is doing um, Dante's going to go to sleep here but before he does on page 290 This, to me, is one of the most amazing truths that I've experienced in my life. Page 290. The two of them are stopping. The sun is going down. You know it's the rule of the mountain. They cannot move. They're trying, so they're making use of their time. Um, Virgil is describing love. He's going to give these discourses on love and on purgatory itself and free will. Here he's outlining love and purgatory. Um, 290. Neither Creator nor His creatures, ever my son, lacked love. There are, as you well know, two kinds, the natural, the rational. This is absolutely crucial right now, this life. Natural love may never be at fault. Underline that. Natural love may never be at fault. The other may. By choosing the wrong goal, by insufficient or excessive zeal, while it's fixed on the eternal good and observes temperance, loving worldly goods, it cannot be the cause of sinful joys. It will be good. But when it turns towards evil or pursues some good with not enough or too much zeal, the creature turns from its creator then. That is, he loves things more than he does God. So you can understand how love must be the seed of every virtue growing in you in every deed. This is such a paradox. The modern world wouldn't get this at all. What he's saying is love is the cause of all good. The cause of evil is love. Because we love the wrong things. Because God made nothing evil. God made everything good. If we abuse that love, it, it's the source of our sins. Now hold on to that because I want to come back to that. This is so crucial. And it goes to this Protestant Catholic thing that we're still in, even though I think we're forgetting it now. But. Now since it's a fact that love cannot ignore the welfare of its loving self, there's nothing in the world can hate itself. Since no being can be conceived as being all in itself severed from the first being, no creature has the power to hate his God, source of his life. Remember, this is all premised on curbing, cultivating, teaching kids the right things, because conceivably you could teach a kid that love is hate and he'd grow up that way. And um, So it follows, if I argue well, the evil that man loves must always be his neighbors. This love springs of three ways in mortal clay. So there's three ways to love evil. There's the man who sees his own success connected with his neighbor's downfall, thus he longs to see him fall from imminence, pride. Next, he who fears to lose honor and fame, power and favor, if his neighbor rises, vexed by this good, he wishes for the worst. There's envy. He wants to see somebody lose something he doesn't have. Finally, he who wronged flares up in rage. With his great passion for revenge, he thinks only of how to harm him. In wrath, we want to strike back at somebody who's hurt us. This threefold love is purged by those below. Now I would have you know that either kind, love that without measure pursues its good. All of you vaguely apprehend and crave a good with which your heart may be at rest. So each of you strives to reach that goal. If you aspire to it or grasp at it with only lukewarm love, then on this list, that's the level of the slothful. It's an inadequate love. 
Another good there is it brings not joy, not perfect joy, for it is not the true essence, it's not the good that will answer all longing, the fruit and root of every good. The love that yields excessive to this is perched before us, above us on three terraces, avarice, gluttony, lust. So look at this, if I can just, for a second. So there are three loves, no, two loves. There's a love of evil. We want evil to come to our neighbor. Right? In pride, we want to be better than somebody, see somebody not get what we have. In envy, we're frightened that we uh, won't get what somebody else has, and we won't, we're happy when they lose it. Wrath is um, the anger we direct at somebody, the wrath that we direct at somebody when they've hurt us, and we want to get back at them. We want harm to come to other people. We're loving the evil that comes to them. Everything above this is love of natural good. This is love of evil. Everything up here is love of good because all these things are good. Sloth is inadequate love. We don't love something enough. Avarice, gluttony, and lust are loving goods that are naturally good that we should love, but love them excessively. We want too many things. We eat or drink too much, and we have too much sex. And I'm trusting we all know that all of these... Um, we all carry them, every one of them. The root of them is pride. These are the roots of, these spiritual sins are the roots of these others, which means, it's, if you think about it, there's no way to have lust if you don't have some element of pride or envy. Or so you said avarice, uh, gluttony, and lust, they were a, a, a second love? Right, they're natural, they're good. They're natural goods that should be loved. Okay. The problem is we love them too much. The thing I want everybody to get here, and, and I really want to go back to this for a second. We've got to stop in just a minute. Um, we're about done, but I don't care. Everybody go back to that line. Natural love may never be at fault. The other may. There, there are, as you well know, two kinds. Natural love and rational. I want everybody to hold on. This is so cru absolutely crucial more than you realize. Dante saying natural love is never wrong. Why? Because God made us. Okay? Plato said natural love is never good. For Plato, intellectual love. Because Plato was an intellectualist. Plato said um, natural goods can be trusted because it's the natural goods that lead us to eat too much, drink too much, have too much sex. It, it, it implied a flawed body. He, he believed that the body was depraved. The Reformation world took Plato as its root. Everything natural in the world to the Protestant was depraved. Not good. The consequences of the fall were gone. Complete. Okay? Plato believed that it was only intellectual good. It was only by knowing the forms that we could escape the disorders of our bodies. That's the whole direction of the Platonic program. The body's a prison house. You can't trust it. So we've talked about this in the Protestant world. There's this implicit contempt of the body, hate of the body, Calvin, all of them. Calvin, Luther, all of them. Think about the difference. Dante is saying natural love can never be wrong because God made it. It's our intellect that gets in the way when, when our minds start, and we know this because we, what's the great fault at the center of hell? The intellect, fraud. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, if, if you begin from hell and you start at the top with a, you know, Francisca and Paolo and go to the heaven, the, the sin at the root of it is fraud. It's what people do with their intellects to twit, to lie, to deceive, to justify, and go on and on. Um, those in hell lost the good of the intellect. Now, stop and think about that because of the, nat- the implications of that for the Protestant mind. The body, the, the love of physical things in the Catholic Church. Christ came in, took on a body, sanctified it with his nature. The importance of the body in the Catholic Mass, incense, flowers, songs. You know, you go on and on and on. Um, here's a, what to me is a perfect example of this that won't mean as much to you, I think, but it means a lot to me. In Dostoevsky's brother, um, um, Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov is plotting a murder of this pawn woman. And he's doing it with some sense that he's an exceptional man, that the standards that apply to it, because this is the modern world. There are no standards, there is no God, you can do what you want. If you happen to be intellectually um, exceptional, you can do more. He plots this murder of this woman, and things go awry when he's doing it. He, he, he sneaks in this axe, and he kills the woman with a sharp edge of the axe. Her sister, who's an idiot, a dumb, you know, a not altogether person, but one the men have taken advantage of, um, happens to come in on the scene. Raskolnikov strikes her to kill her, even though he didn't want to. And when he when he does it, he's described as or I can't remember, when he when he um, killed Liz, um, can't remember the pawn woman's name. He he uses the blunt edge on her. When Lisa Vetta, I think that's her name, the idiot girl comes in, Dostoevsky described her taking the axe to kill her and using the sharp end. Now, why did he do that? Being a little bit more merciful to her. Because his natural love got in the way. So, I I don't know, I'm assuming Dostoevsky read this, I don't know that he read, you know, but it's hard to believe he wouldn't have, but... That to me is one of the most perfect examples of what what I think Dante's talking about here. Natural love doesn't go wrong. It, there is a goodness to it. It's there. You can't root it out. Evil evil can take over. You can still do evil, but but the danger for Dante was the intellect. What people would do, and you can see that we can use our minds to justify evil against our neighbors. Always, we always justify them. You did this to me. You know whether you said this or. Or to justify excessive loves, to pass them off, make arguments for them. I'm I, I not. A, I, I'm. I can't hear arguments today in the political realm. You know, when I listen to the debates, it's just impossible for me to listen to them without hearing that that habit of justifying what to me are insane positions, absolutely insane. We're watching a mind in our country. I we're watching a mind go bad the modern intellect. Quickly, um, I've got to do this quick, go on over to, I'm going to leave this with you to think about. Remember Odysseus and the Siren, when he approached the Siren, he had all these adventures. When he came to the island of the Sirens, he had his men tie him to the mast because he wanted to, remember Odysseus wanted to climb that mountain or sail to that mountain, he wanted to be everything. He wanted to experience the Sirens when he knew they were a danger. So he had all the men put wax in their ears so they weren't in danger. So he would be allowed to have that experience. Um, 
And you know when he approaches the shore, the shoreline is strewn with skulls and bones. And so while, while Dante and Virgil are here, they fall asleep. And um, page 298-299. As he's dreaming, this happens. There, 298. There came into my dream a woman stuttering, cross-eyed, stumbling along on her main feet with ugly yellow skin and hands to forms. I stared at her, and as the sun revives a body numbed by the night's cold, just so my eyes upon her worked to free her tongue and strengthen out all her deformities, gradually suffusing her wan face with just the color love would have desired. Once her tongue was loosened by my gaze, she started singing, and the way she sang captured my mind. I could not free it. I am, she sang, sang the sweet siren, I am, whose song beguiles the sailors in mid-sea, enticing them, inviting them to joy. My singing made Ulysses turn away from his desired court, who dwells with me, seldom departs. I satisfy so well. Her lips had not yet closed when there appeared a saintly lady standing. Now, Lucha, remember who's the one that Mary sent to Beatrice? Lucha means light. Mm -hmm. She comes to Virgil, I think she's a little bit irritated in Virgil, and says, Virgil, wake him up. This is Dante cannot come out of that sleep with Virgil's help. Reason's inadequate to deal with this. Intellectual reason is not adequate. Lucha has to come to get Virgil, and Virgil has to shake Dante violently to get him out. So what we're looking, remember Odysseus, the, the, the shore is strewn with dead bodies. Um, he sees the other, well, Virgil, Virgil, who is this, she cried with indignation. Virgil moved towards her, keeping his gaze fixed on that noble one. Virgil could not have done this without her help. He sees the other ripped her garments off, exposing his, her as far down as the punch. The stench pouring from her woke me. Okay, what's going on? And remember, this happens here. What's going on? Because this is a prelude. So what's going on? Dante's taking this from Homer in the Odyssey. The amazing thing is he's taking what Homer had a glimpse of, I think, but that Homer, uh, Homer understood it intuitively the way a poet does. I think Dante, because he had philosophy behind him, could could see through to fuller implications that he. But I, I don't have any question that Homer, because what Homer shows by what he does shows that he really does understand the siren. What's going on? This is Dante's critique of idolatry. This is so important, so important. What Dante, let me put it differently. Where does the siren get her power over Dante? Where does she get her power? Well, through what he makes up in his mind. Yeah. She has only as much power over him as he gives her. How she described, stuttering, yellow, wan, crippled. The more he looks at her, the more she loosened her tongue, the more she sang, the less able he was to escape her. It, if, our, if our hearts were made to love God, and, and at the center of our hearts is this infinite desire that won't be satisfied 
until we get to him. What happens when we turn those desires towards other? We make of them always more than we should. When young romance, I'm trusting all of us know this, when we, in high school, you know, when we want to go to the prom or whatever, or we have our first date, or even before we're married. I mean, Suzanne and I have 10 books to write on this. When you marry and think you're going to live blissfully ever, forever after, what happens two years later when you suddenly start encountering each other's sins? Were they not there before? You of course they were. Yes, they were. Blinded by the love. Or, or you are idolatrous. Mm -hmm. But you cast over. Now think about the importance of this for romantic love and how selfish it is. We cast it because we want that That's thing. Right. So we make of it more than it is. And when we don't get our way, when things start falling apart, and we suffer on our will, what happens? Fight, I hate, how ugly you are. I mean, mm -hmm. Right? It was always there. Our, I mean, this is why I say, I just wish we could go to the kids with this. If we were raised better to have a sense of this while we're growing up, wouldn't we be more moderate? Wouldn't we be more virtuous? Or So here's Dante's critique of idolatry, and the reason it's here is because it's a critique of everything that follows. These are earthly goods, not evil. All of us want these. The trouble is that we long for them too much, and we use our minds to make them okay. I think you can grow your children to a degree, but the problem is that some of this stuff is more deep than they're able to consume. But if, if it's a part of your life every day, I mean, yeah. my trust is, I believe so strongly by our own example, if this is the way we live, if, I didn't know this, Suzanne and I didn't know this when we were growing, none of this, but I believe that if we had known this, um, we, the way we know it now, oh. if, it were, if it had been a part of our life, you know, we were more temperate and more virtuous, I mean, if this were a part of the way we lived, I don't believe our lives would have played out. I mean, I'm glad that they're here now. I, when I look at that, I think... Oh, and by the way, what was Virgil's answer, or Marco's answer? The reason, the reason things are as bad as they are is because people don't believe in free will anymore. They believe in all these determinisms. You were created by the planets, the alignment, which is... There's a truth to it, he said. Th that initiates our physical determinations. What's the great problem in the modern world? Is any different? Freud, a determinist. He does not believe in free will. Um, um, Darwin. Hmm? Darwin. Darwin. Hmm. We're a product of blind forces. <coughs> the modern philosophy, the, the dominant philosophies of our day are no different from the, do, the dominant philosophies in Dante's day. The dominant ones always undercut man's free will and made it harder for him to believe in virtue or... How many people even... How many people think in terms of virtue today? The, the shaping influences of our time are deterministic. Freud, Darwin, um, the sciences rest on determined things that can't be other than they are. They're fixed. Calvin was determinist. We have no free will. God determines everything. What Dante's saying, of, I mean, it's just, as I read that passage, I just think, Jesus, it's like he's alive now talking to us. We gotta stop. Suzanne and I have a we have to go someplace. Great. Okay. So next week we'll finish the purgatory. So okay, you get your flipping all done. <laughs>
lived through this. But, but she 